I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Political Currency with Ed Balls and George Osborne. Good to be back. Big excitement at Good Morning Britain. Last night, Susanna Reid was given the award Network Television Presenter of the Year. Very exciting. Presumably she uh, thanked you in her speech. You know, like Oscar star. She didn't know. And, um, <laughs> oh. and, and she had no reason to. She thanked Bill Turnbull, who'd been a kind of a great right. inspiration to her. But, you know, she's, she's brilliant. And no, he, no gushing reference to Ed Balls, n- her loyal no. companion on the show. No, no. But, but nor should she, because she's brilliant. She's been there for a long time and she's a top class professional television journalist. However... This is not the only exciting Good Morning Britain news, because I also had an email a couple of days ago from the senior political producer at Good Morning Britain, Kieran Clark, who said he'd been chatting with a, a former Tory minister. And this former Tory minister had said to him, look, we've got a huge problem in London because the candidate... Susan Hall, she's just not up to it. And we Congratulations need... for remembering her name. I know. Well, I looked it up just now. And um, she's a terrible candidate. It's not too late. This is the Tory candidate. Yeah. The Tory candidate. It's not too late to change her. Give Sadiq Khan a proper run for his money. And according to my GMB little birdie, Kieran Clark, this Tory former minister said, David Cameron's got to call in a favour, get George to stand. <laughs> that is that is what that is what they're wanting. I don't I don't think they are wanting that in Downing Street. No, well, you know, I'm not sure what London wants it either. But what's <laughs> the point? Look, 2012 in the Olympics is a long time ago. It's, it's well, in the I'm, past. Uh, in the... I'm born and bred a Londoner. Are you a little bit tempted? No, not at all. Not at all. Look, well, they, I think sorry. I think being the London mayor is a really good job. Don't get me wrong. I think it's actually one of the one of the really plum jobs in British public life. And let's be honest, a Conservative think, candidate. I mean. 
Goodness. Well, I think it's, let, let's be honest, despite Lee Anderson's best efforts, uh, which we'll come on to, Sadiq Khan is in quite a strong position, isn't he, this year to get re-elected? Well, talking of Sadiq Khan, we're going to start off by talking about the row this week about Islamophobia, which has broken out in Westminster following his comments and look at what that all means. And of course, it's budget week coming up. This will be Jeremy Hunt's second budget. We've already had some influence, we feel, potentially on the budget. And we're going to go into more detail into what Jeremy Hunt needs to achieve on budget day next Wednesday. And then what you may have missed, the underlying challenge for the UK is our growth performance has been so poor since the financial crisis. Doesn't look like it's going to improve anytime soon unless we do something differently. And we're going to talk about a paper that we published this week, Harvard King's paper, about growth policy. When you say we, you mean Professor Balls. Me and um, my fellow co-authors, Dan Turner, Niasha Weinberg, Esme Elsden and Anna Stansbury, young Upright. My God, you're giving academics. your own Oscar speech now. <laughs> I know. And I would like to thank um, my, my mother and father <laughs> for giving me the best start in life and for all my friends. Let's get on with the podcast. I'm just, I'm just going to have to avoid getting tearful. <laughs> Let's start. We're going to talk about Islamophobia and Lee Anderson, but actually you can't see this week in its full context without reflecting upon Liz Truss's astonishing performance in America. Yes, well, it's probably worth listening. And This is our, our former prime minister was at CPAC. <laughs> In case we've forgotten. Um, in case we've forgotten. CPAC, which is a conservative conference, a Republican conference in America. This was the explanation she gave as to why her premiership was not a great success. Was it The Economist that got you? Was it the Financial Times of London? Are these the people we got? This that, the party that, at the, the city the, of London. These, are they the ones that run the deal these, over there? These, these are the friends of the bureaucratic establishment. They are the friends of the deep state. And they work together with bureaucrats, of which we've got many more in Britain than you have here in the United States, to keep things the same. And people in Britain aren't happy about that. They want change, but it's being stopped. And that's why we need a bigger bazooka. <laughs> right. So I was talking to Steve Bannon, the um, yeah. Trumpian conspiracist. As people who've listened to our podcast before, I have a soft spot for Liz Truss. Perhaps <laughs> was not her finest speech. And, you know, she was wrong on a number of fronts. I mean, first of all, you know, her government was brought down by the free market. I mean, the city of London is not a thing. The city of London is the home to financial markets, capital markets, people making choices about where to put their money. And they chose to take their money out of Britain because of an unfunded budget that Kwasi Kwarteng delivered. And that's what brought down Liz Truss. So that's the first thing. Second, I'm not sure there are more bureaucrats in Britain than America. Definitely so we not. won't pick her up on that. And I don't think the you know collapse of her premiership can be entirely attributed either to the FT and the Economist. Although where I think she's probably and right. And their friends in the deep state. Well, if there is a deep state, it probably is the Economist magazine. I, think <laughs> I, I will I will concede, possibly. I will give Liz that, that um, Economist Towers is probably the heart of the British deep state, if there is such a thing. <laughs> but, you know, it was interesting that Keir Starmer chose that as his line. I thought that PMQs. was, uh, yeah, I thought that was quite sensible of him. We'll come on to the Islamophobia row. And, you know, I think it's complicated for both parties. And it's a very difficult situation in the country. Whereas this is an element of the Conservative Party really kind of going off the deep end when it comes to being in touch with reality. This is an element of the Conservative Party trying to explain the frustrations of years of being in office 
and the failure to achieve some of the things that were promised, for example, in the Brexit referendum, on forces beyond their control, the deep state, the bureaucracy, the liberal press, and so on. Islamic Um, extremism, probably. I would put that in a different category, because these are the sort of economic forces of conservatism, she would say, or the anti-growth coalition, I think, as she put it. And look, there are definitely elements of truth to the fact that parts of our state, the regulators, and so on, can frustrate enterprise. And, you know, there's a scepticism of a smaller state amongst the liberal press. That's all true. But fundamentally, things have to be paid for. And where conservatives keep falling down, in my view, in recent years, is they want the smaller state that lower taxes could bring without being prepared to say, we're going to cut public spending, we're going to cut welfare, we're going to deliver less, and as a result, we'll charge you less. And and ever since, uh, you know, essentially the kind of austerity period ended, People have not been prepared to have that argument. They, they want to end austerity, but they also want lower taxes. We're going to come on to it in the budget. And, and because they've been frustrated in being unable to deliver that sort of Singapore on Thames vision that was presented at the time of Brexit, they come up with all sorts of excuses. But the Tories have been in office for 14 years. If, if they haven't achieved what they wanted to achieve, they've got only themselves to blame. I mean, look, her speech was kind of wacky, but you do wonder where you know this could go in terms of her relationship to Sunak and to the Conservative Party. I mean, you know, could we actually end up with a unprecedented situation where both the former leaders of the two main parties, in this case, Jeremy Corbyn and Liz Truss, have both been removed from their own parliamentary parties by their successors? Well, I don't think Sunak is going to kick Liz Truss out of the Tory party. I think there's a... Would she like him to? I think there's a question, and this is not, again, I have to sort of slightly abstract from my own personal affection for Liz, but the, the truth is this, Sunak has not yet defined his premiership in the way he would like, which is why he's behind the polls and he's behind Starmer on the personal ratings. And there are two things in his career that you can point to that was seriously courageous. The first was resigning from Boris Johnson's government as Chancellor of the Exchequer. Why? Because he thought Boris Johnson was immoral, unethical. Now, whether or not you agree with him on that, that's what he thought. That's why he resigned. It wasn't on a policy issue that he chose to resign as Chancellor. And yet, ever since then, he's not really been prepared to talk about that. He's never said, Boris Johnson's government was immoral. I wanted no more part of it. Second, on Truss, you know, he lost the leadership election to Liz Truss, partly because he didn't follow her down the rabbit hole of unfunded, undeliverable tax cuts, which in the end, you know, did serious damage to the British economy. And he should make much more of that. I told you it was wrong at the time. I stood up to it. And by the way, this nonsense she's speaking in America now, I have no part of it. It's wrong. And we're a parliamentary democracy and we should not give any sucker to the idea that there's a deep state that, uh, you know, forces beyond democratic control are really running the country, that power is vested in the bureaucracy. You know, but Sunak should stand up to that, call it out. And I think he would personally politically benefit from doing so. He's worried about unrest in my cause in the Tory party. But as we've discussed before, the only way you can really leave the Tory party is to be a winner. Right? That is, the Tory party does not tolerate people who are behind in the polls. And so stop trying to manage the party define yourself with things you've really done in life, courageous acts he's taken as a politician, and I think he'd be in a better place. But the striking thing as well about Liz Truss's comments was that she um, was giving a ringing endorsement for Donald Trump, the next president of the United States. We've seen the same thing, Jacob Rees-Mogg from Boris Johnson in recent weeks. You've been to Mar-a-Lago, of course. I'm quite jealous. In terms of sort of political tourism, I've been to to Kenny Bunkport with the Bushes. 
hang out. I've been to Yorba Linda, where Richard Nixon was born. But Mar-a-Lago, that's got to be high on the list of uh, destinations for the political well, tourist. Uh, I was there back in 2018 for the one-year anniversary celebration event at Mar-a-Lago for the first year of the Trump presidency. There was all this speculation as to whether Trump himself would come, but in the end, he didn't. His son and his wife, uh, Lara, gave these speeches. There was a thousand people there. The thing I remember, though, was, you know, I was there helping them set it up and put out the the bunting and the flags, talking to them. It was for a BBC documentary. I was about to say, why? It was for a BBC documentary called Travels in Trouble. I think you better explain that to our listeners. You haven't gone full Trump in. No, no, I had not gone full. No, 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 no. I was with these women from Palm Beach called the Trumpets, who are big supporters of Trump. And they were kind of amazing and fabulous and I'd been out for lunch with them where they had defended him and then we were chatting in Mar-a-Lago and I met one of the trumpets and she said to me this in the middle of the afternoon she said are you English and I said yes she said are you from London and I said yeah I am she said is it safe and I said yes and she said but aren't there no-go areas I said what do you mean she said aren't there Muslim no-go areas in London places where people like us can't go and I said honestly no I mean, I don't know really what you're talking about. But of course, this was the very beginning of well, Trump. You had, had a Tory minister talking about no-go areas. Well, and that's the thing. If you said to me back in 2018, you'd end up with the former deputy chair of the Conservative Party, Lee Anderson, and a former Tory business minister, Paul Scully, both talking about no-go areas, essentially. Uh, we should or, say or Paul is, has apologised for his comments. He has apologised, which yeah. is, and he's a good guy. I think he said a very stupid thing. But I mean, it is incredible what's happened. Yeah, again, I I think people are looking for reasons to explain why some of the promises that different factions of the Conservative Party have made over recent years have not been delivered. And they they come up with these rather lame excuses. And of course, it's very out of the Trump playbook. I think, you know, what's interesting, we should come on to now the row, I guess, about Lee Anderson's remarks. So Lee Anderson is Conservative MP for what was previously a very Labour area, Ashfield, a former mining constituency, was described not that long ago as Rishi Sunak's secret weapon when he made him deputy chairman of the Tory party. He's become a bazooka now. Yes, the bazooka pointed in the wrong direction, as we're about to discover. But this is what he said on GB News. I don't actually believe that these Islamists have got control of our country, but what I do believe is they've got control of Khan and they've got control of London, and they've got control of Storm as well. Comments from a senior Conservative are Islamophobic, are anti-Muslim, and are racist. They could be taken that way, right? And because they could be taken that way, he was given the chance to apologise, and he failed to do so. Words matter, and his words weren't acceptable, they were wrong, and that's why the whip was suspended. The Prime Minister should call it out for what it is. The reason he won't is because he's so weak. We had uh, the voices there of the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, after Lee Anderson, and Oliver Dowden, the Deputy Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, obviously Prime Minister, and Keir Starmer. Look, first of all, credit to Sunak. He did take the whip away from Lee Anderson, which is not straightforward when Lee Anderson... waited quite a long time to do I always think in those situations, you're allowed to have a few hours. I bet you Sajid Javid was on the phone saying, what the hell are you doing? I think you're right about that. I think Sajid Javid plays the kind of unsung hero role in all this. So Sajid Javid, former Chancellor of the Exchequer, very senior Muslim Conservative MP, he, as I understand it, did phone Downing Street and said, this is completely unacceptable and it's not enough for this guy to apologise, which is, I think, what Downing Street had been exploring. You know, he's got to go. Remember, Sunak was chief secretary to Sajid Javid when Sajid Javid was chancellor. And they they, resigned in parallel. They resigned in parallel from Boris Johnson's government. So they are quite close as well. 
and Downing Street listened. I think at that point, you're thinking Sunak is being strong. He is standing up to unacceptable behavior and unacceptable language from a conservative MP, even if they are prominent and well supported in part of the Tory party. And I guess he's living up to what you would want him to be, which is the voice of moderation and the physical embodiment of the tolerant, multi-faith, multi-ethnic democracy that we're proud to be part of. So I think at that moment, you know, Sunak's on the front foot. It's complicated, this debate about Islamophobia. It's a contested word. It's a word defined um, for the UK by an all-party parliamentary group, uh, a definition which has been accepted by Labour and the Liberal Democrats, by the Tories in Scotland, but not in Westminster. The Business Secretary, he's also the Equality Secretary, Kemi Badnock, prefers to talk about anti-Muslim hatred rather than Islamophobia. There's a fear, isn't there, in some circles that because Islam is not an ethnicity, it should be possible to criticise it as a religion without criticising people in a racist way. Although, let's be honest, the Lee Anderson, you know, if it walks and quacks like a racist duck, it's a racist duck. And, you know, Khan... And the conspiracy of him being taken over, I mean, that's where the racism comes. So first of all, Lee Anderson's words are unacceptable. By the way, even Lee Anderson is currently saying they were clumsy. So even he acknowledges, and he, you know, he's the last person to apologise for things, that um, he's made a mistake here. And I think you're absolutely right. He's clearly trying to elide the fact that Sadiq Khan is the non-white Muslim mayor of London with, with Islamist just, just terrorism, kind of, which is so resonating. completely unacceptable. All the whips were drawn. You're right that within the Conservative Party, there is unease around the phrase Islamophobia. And to be fair, it's not just the right wing or you know people whose views I wouldn't agree with who have this problem with it. It was, we've just been talking about it, Sajid Javid as Home Secretary, who did not accept the phrase Islamophobia. Because he thought there's a distinction between being prejudiced against or or hostile to Muslim people, which is clearly wrong, versus you know having concerns about the religion of Islam and some of its teachings, just as you might have concerns about the religion of Christianity and some of its teachings. And Islamophobia was sort of too broad a term. And he came up with this phrase, which others have now been using, which is anti-Muslim hatred. So the Conservative Party... They would say, and Sajid, who you've got to take very seriously on these issues, would say, we don't want to introduce blasphemy laws, which we used to have in this country, saying you couldn't criticise Christianity and, you know, films like The Life of Brian wouldn't have been able to be produced. But, you know, you you shouldn't be reintroducing anti-blasphemy laws specifically for Islam. But all of this is, in, of course, a complete muddle. And as a result, Sunak starts with this strong position of taking the whip away from Lee Anderson. But then the whole party drifts into this really uh, you know, muddled position of being unable to explain why he's had the whip withdrawn. They should have said to the question, why has Lee Anderson been fired? Or was he Islamophobic? He's been fired and he was Islamophobic if you take as the definition of Islamophobia, anti-Muslim hatred. And that's why he's had to go. And that, you know, that would have ended it. Instead, you've had a whole string of uh, junior ministers essentially hung out to dry going out trying to repeat the Downing Street line, which we heard Sunak. Painful though this is, I think we're going to have to listen to this. And it culminates with Nick Ferrari in a great piece of uh, journalism on LBC. Well, I've been very clear that what Lee said was wrong, it was unacceptable, and that's why we suspended the whip. And it's important that everybody, but particularly elected politicians, are careful with their words and, and do not inflame tensions. Well, it was wrong. And uh, I'm not going to get into arguing about the rights and wrongs of what he said. It was wrong. In my book, wrong is a strong And word. Nick, it was wrong. 
Minister, I'm going to... I'm normally a very polite man. I'm actually going to effectively put the fact... I'll ask you now, for the third time, I've asked you six times why it was necessary. For the third time, was it Islamophobic? Uh, Nick, it was wrong. I'll have to curtail the interview there. I'm grateful for your time, but enough already. Michael Tomlinson... Yeah, that's a string of junior ministers trying to follow the Prime Minister's line that it was wrong. But it's one of those lines to take where... You're sent out to defend it and it, and, it, and, and, and repeat it. And it, it just doesn't work because it doesn't withstand the second or third question you get, which is, was he racist? You know, it's, it's a pretty weak line to take. We've all been there when we were kind of junior ministers and shadow ministers. And I have some sympathy for them hanging out on the wire like that. And again, it's, you know, I, th- I think it speaks to a bigger problem of the Sunak premiership, which is he has strong convictions. He has a good sense of where he wants to take things. I have a lot of sympathy with his approach to life. And yet he then kind of loses the courage of his convictions, won't double down on things because he's worried about party management. So having fired Lee Anderson, you should absolutely double, triple down on why you fired him, why you're being strong, not try to sort of run away from the issue subsequently and end up looking weak when you've taken what should be a strong step. I was at the Community Security Trust Dinner last night. This is the organisation which um, works very closely with the police to um, provide security for Jewish schools and community centres around the country. Brilliant organisation, very much trusted, works closely with the Home Office. And of course, right now, such a tense time for that community with anti-Semitic attacks on the rise. And Rishi Sunak gave a very good speech and he had a standing ovation at the end. And he said the things which needed to be said about tackling racism and discrimination everywhere. And he said, I'm proud to be the prime minister in a multi-faith, multi-ethnic democracy. And that is what we'll defend. And I thought to myself, if you just said that earlier in the week, and the reason why Lee Anderson was removed from the whip was because he was in a racist way undermining the tolerance and mutuality which you need to live in a multi-faith, multi-ethnic democracy. And he didn't say that. And it's, it's, it's the problem is, you know why he's worried, because out there are loads of Tory candidates who may well have said things like Lee Anderson over the last year or two. And if they come out and are repeated or publicised in the newspapers between now and the election, that is destabilising. On the other hand, if you look back to the Jeremy Corbyn era, the failure to be clear about what anti-Semitism is and why it's wrong, to say when asked, well, you know, as the Corbyn people did, well, we just condemn racism wherever it is, without ever being clear about what anti-Semitism is and why it was wrong, which meant that every time you had a new example, it was a new case and a new complexity and it always looked like Corbyn was behind the curve on the issue. And if I was Rishi Sunak, I would think, well, you know, the speech I gave last night in that hall, I should be giving that speech to the nation. Yeah. And of course, you know, what actually took the headlines was not his speech at the CST dinner, but the um, remarks he made to police chiefs earlier in the day that Mob rule was taking over on our streets, you know, which is obviously an exaggeration. What he's trying to do there is say, you know, and Keir Starmer's not really gripped his party and he's allowing this mob rule to be taken over. Although at the same time, he was also announcing tens of millions of pounds well, for MP security, which is presumably because there is actually a genuine threat to people from what these mobs are up to. Therefore, it's not just kind of made up or some kind of political thing. It's real. Yes. You see, I think what the Conservatives feel, both as the government responsible for security and as a party trying to find a political advantage over its opponents is that there is a lot of unease in Britain now about these Palestinian protests. 
so-called pro-Palestinian protests because what they've also attracted is a whole bunch of rather anarchic people who will turn up at any protest. Probably would have been on climate activist protests uh, a couple of years ago. And I think a lot of people in Britain are looking at these kind of people storming council chambers, storming shops and banks on the high street. The British Museum, which I'm chairman of, you know, they stormed the British Museum and took over the central court and disrupted everyone's day who was taking their families to the museum. That is quite alarming. There's an element of it that's really dangerous, which is why they've announced extra money to protect the lives of MPs. And there is a feeling it's not completely under control. And there is a feeling like how on earth do you allow things like that projection to appear on Parliament that says essentially the state of Israel should be eliminated and by implication all the people in it should be eliminated. There's a real unease which the Conservatives are tapping into and there's a feeling – I mean, we've got the Rochdale by-election coming tonight, right, where remember Labour had to suspend its own candidate even though he's still marked as Labour on the ballot paper because the ballot papers have been printed over anti-Semitism. And, you know, there is a feeling Starmer himself, having taken quite a strong stance on all of this, has retreated under pressure from his own party and is not calling these things out. And I think the Conservatives sense the political opportunity, but the way they're going, they're not doing it, you know, it would actually strengthen their case if you called out Lee Anderson, were absolutely unequivocal about why he'd been fired. And that enables you then to call out tolerance of disorder and anarchy under the guise of pro-Palestinian protests and call out your political opponents who, you know, are increasingly taking a kind of mushy line, to quote my friend Danny Finkelstein again, second week row, in a recent column, a mushy line on the kind of Gaza situation, having previously taken quite a strong line. Look, I don't agree with the Danny column. I think Keir's line was a good line. Danny seems to be saying that the only true positions are the pure positions, which is you either have to say to the Israelis, withdraw, and accept that reality, or you have to continue to fight until Hamas is eradicated. And the reality is most people want there to be a way in which um, a ceasefire is negotiated and managed, and then a political solution. And I think if you would talk to David Cameron, he would agree with that. I didn't think the Keir Starmer line was a bad line, although I do think they've made a mess of things in the last few weeks and months on this issue. But if you kind of stand back and ask your previous point about mob rule and those protests, the truth is, when you have a big divisive moment like this, of course it is the case that the extremists and the hardliners jump in and see their opportunity. And the fear about what's happening will be deep in the Muslim community as it is across our whole country. The question is, how do you tackle that? What kind of leadership tackles that? And the only way to do it is to have a common endeavour of a multi-faith, multi-ethnic democracy fighting the extremists. And what Lee Anderson's remarks did are totally contrary to that because what they do, the reason they're Islamophobic is they make it very hard indeed for the centrist Muslim mainstream leaders to be working with a government which looks like is tolerating that kind of othering of the Muslim population. And that is why to solve this problem and isolate the mob, you have to bring the mainstream of the Muslim community into the cooperation. And he was doing the opposite of that Khan. Sadiq Khan no, I think is we agree not with, we playing agree. games with Muslim extremists. I think we all agree on Lee Anderson, including Rishi I said. know, but it was an opportunity for no, the no, Prime Minister. He didn't take it. You and I agree on that. In Labour, there is definitely a nervousness. The Muslim vote's quite important to Labour. There'll be a lot of sympathy within the broader kind of left activist community with the Palestinians and so on. Salman's had problems around this. 
And so they don't want to be too tough on these protests. And I think the Conservatives sense an opportunity that Middle England is concerned about these protests and want people to speak out about them. So how does, you know, Labour needs to kind of thread that complicated needle? Uh, I don't mind um, the Conservatives playing politics in a general election on very many issues. But on something as divisive and dangerous as this, where you're talking about people's lives being at risk and the fears of what extremists could do, at that point, whether you're Keir Starmer or you're the Prime Minister, aside from electoral politics, you should be thinking, let us work with the mainstream Muslim population and their leaders to isolate the extremists. And if Rishi Sunak thinks to himself, if Keir Starmer looks like he's trying to reach out to those sensible leaders, and I'm going to call that weak, I think that is the wrong kind of playing politics. That's what I'm saying. Well, I agree. I've discovered that the Tory campaign machine also agrees, and they want the Prime Minister to be very focused on the economy, something we've been talking about on this podcast for many, many weeks. Another week's gone by where the Conservative leadership is not talking about the economy. But next week is Budget Week. And you've got to assume, therefore, that finally, we're going to be talking about the main message that the Conservatives need to be trying to get across if they've got any chance of winning this election. Including maybe a bit of non-domery. We'll talk about that next. 
on our EMQs last week, and you were right. Well, I'm so thrilled for her, and I'm actually thrilled for the Bank of England. Claire worked for me unbelievably. She was my closest civil service aide. She was the principal private secretary when I was chancellor. And she worked all hours for me, but also for the team. And, you know, totally impartial, not in any way a conservative. She served the Labour government as well, the best of the British civil service, and a really formidable economic brain. So absolutely brilliant. She's going to be at the Bank of England. And she won't thank me for saying this, but maybe one day a future and first female governor of the Bank of England. Well, you know, it would be a very, very good thing and she'd be a very good candidate. Excellent. She's also, we know, a listener to this podcast, so... Do we? Yes. Oh, good. Well, in that case, Claire, congratulations. It's a brilliant appointment. Look, I think we should go and visit the Bank of England. Yes. I've got to show you the gold You since you sold it. But it hasn't actually left. It'll still be there. (laughs) It hasn't left. It's literally, I went to the gold. The gold vaults of the Bank of England are definitely worth seeing. Maybe maybe we could take our listeners into the gold vaults. That's a very good idea, and we can discuss that ancient history. And another piece of breaking news this morning, the Treasury have been listening to our podcast, and maybe the Chancellor has, because we were speculating, weren't we, just a few days ago, that Jeremy Hunt might want to shoot the Labour fox on non-doms, that he might want to either dramatically curtail or even abolish the non-dom status. He can use that money to fund his tax cuts in the budget, but it also removes from Labour a pot of money that they've already going around promising that they're going to spend. We heard the news that the Treasury are fans of our podcast on a programme we're we're a fan of. This is what the Today programme was reporting this morning. What's interesting is that the Treasury overnight chose to stand up a story originally, I think, in the Telegraph, uh, that Jeremy Hunt was looking at stealing Labour's clothes by abolishing those non-DOM tax rules. Now, it was an idea that George Osborne, the former Chancellor, talked about a few days ago, where he said if he was tempted, he'd want to steal Labour's clothes, which would have the political advantage for the Tories of being saying, well, we've taken all your money away. You've got no extra money to spend on public services, because that's where it was coming from. A mandatory reference to Nick Robinson on our podcast. I'm so pleased you're getting the credit for this. I think you should get the credit for shooting Labour's fox, Ed. Because (laughs) because we don't like to reveal too much of the wirings that go on behind the seamless production of this podcast. But you were the one who said we really should talk about non-doms and have a discussion about whether Jeremy Hunt should do something on non-doms. And you couldn't understand using your political brain why he hadn't already. Well, somebody had sent a question in and we were looking through the question list and there it was. And we've been talking about this for a year and a half. I think the interesting thing in that Today programme report just there, Robert Peston was on Twitter saying the same thing last night, was that it seems to be driven not simply by some desire to challenge Labour. They'll have to come up with an alternative way to pay for their commitments, but also that if they want to cut taxes, they need to find some other revenue to pay for it. And that suggests that not much has changed since the autumn statement in terms of the economic fiscal forecasts, little bit more, as they say, headroom. We'll talk about what that really means later on. But the suggestion is that the reason Jeremy Hunt is looking for revenue is because he needs that if he's going to do anything in the budget. I think so that we are not accused of excessive cynicism. I think we should register here. There is a price for getting rid of the non-DOM status. It might be a clever political trick. It might deliver some money for tax cuts. You might argue 
that there's a social justice element here, that very wealthy people should pay the same taxes as everyone else. But there will be a hit to the UK's reputation as a place where foreign money can come in, individuals from around the world who are wealthy can come and live in Britain. And there will definitely be an economic cost to that. Now, you might think it's worth it. And there are lots of things we do in this country which you know don't necessarily make economic sense, but make social justice sense. But I think we should acknowledge here there's a reason why no previous Conservative or Labour government has got rid of the non-DOM status. And they won't get rid of it, will they? I mean, they won't abolish the non-DOMs. What they will do is find a way in which they can restrict it and make it harder to get the tax break. And that's what will raise the revenue. What I've picked up is there has been a, a row probably overstates it, but there's certainly been friction between number 10 and number 11. And, you know, it's pretty obvious the number 10 would like to cut income tax. That, you know, specifically is something that Rishi Sunak promised when he was running to be the Tory leader against Liz Truss. That was a contest he lost. Rishi Sunak, who has raised more income tax in this parliament than probably any chancellor ever. Right, who's by freezing the personal allowance and other thresholds is actually taking in tens of billions of pounds extra in uh, income tax. But I think number 10 was interested in cuts in the headline rate of income tax. And the problem that they've not been able to get around is the fact that this is regarded as inflationary by the Office for Budget Responsibility. So in other words, if you cut income tax, you put inflation up. And if you think of the central mission of the Sunak government, it has been to get inflation down. And this has been the source of a lot of conflict and debate and argument between number 10 and number 11. I don't fully understand that, quite why income tax rather than national insurance or VAT would be more or less kind of inflationary. It's sort of, I don't fully understand that. I've, I've tried to get more details from various think tanks about it, but that's what I've told. So we'll see on the day. But I think what number 10 would have wanted was some big income tax cuts. And I think the Treasury has resisted that. I may be wrong about that. So, you know, obviously, I haven't seen the budget. And I haven't spoken to the Chancellor, by the way. So I've no no idea. But that's what I'm picking up. So Um, how would you say, I mean, this budget, what's Jamie Hunt got to do? Well, these are the tests, aren't they, of the budget? So the first thing is it has to support the government's economic strategy. And the central message of Hunt and Sunak is we've stabilised the ship and now we're starting to deliver lower taxes. That's the central message you think they should be delivering. Well, I think their best message is we're stabilising the ship and we're turning the corner and there are green shoots and don't let Labour ruin it. So the budget's got to deliver on that. Second, you know, there's clearly huge Tory pressure to deliver a pre-election tax cut All chancellors, all governments deliver some kind of giveaway in budgets just before elections. I mean, the IFS, I think, were doing some sums about it. And on average, the pre-election budget delivers a giveaway of around 0.2% of GDP. By the way, budgets after an election take that all away. And the average budget after an election takes away 0.3% of GDP. So the first test is deliver the central economic message and strategy. Second test is find money for a tax cut which is obviously, as we're going to come on and discuss, very hard when spending is so tight. I think the third test is, are you going to shoot Labour foxes? Are you going to put additional pressure on Labour? We were just discussing the move on non-DOMs. And then I think the fourth one is the most complicated and the most personal. So this is, you know, in no way to disrespect Jeremy Hunt, but it is probably Jeremy Hunt's last budget. In other words, he'll either lose the election, the Tories will lose the election, there'll be Rachel Reeves will be the Chancellor, or Rishi Sunak will win the election 
And I think the widespread expectation would be he would have a new chancellor. Doesn't mean Jeremy Hunt couldn't go off and do some other big job in the cabinet. But, you know, all the talk is he would have someone like Claire Coutinho, who is one of his acolytes in the cabinet. So what's Jeremy Hunt trying to achieve with his last budget? Well, he's trying to make sure that Jeremy Hunt goes down as a person who did a great job as chancellor, stabilised the economy after the Trust Kwartung catastrophe, a decent person, an honest person, a man who promoted enterprise, who supported business, the things that he's personally interested in. And you know he does not want to throw that all away just to support number 10's agenda, which will be basically put everything possible on the bonfire in order to try and stoke up a Tory win. And quite often, as you know, you know better than anyone, really, the, the Chancellor and the Prime Minister don't have exactly the same objectives when it comes to a budget. And their personal ambitions and their personal agendas might be in conflict. And I think in this case, that's definitely something we should look for in the final budget that comes it's out. It's interesting because Ken Clark was a chancellor who kept fighting till the end, cut income tax in his last budget, I think, the 1p down budget. If you think in history... People like Roy Jenkins, a little bit Alistair Darley as well, seem to have been, you know, good, sound chancellors, but they weren't really playing that political game in the final year before the election. I think, I think about Jeremy Hunt. If he's trying to pass your tests, I just sort of think he's got the expectation management wrong here. And it's partly, I think, because there was a wobble in the back in, was it December? You know, Was he going to carry on doing the job? He had to kind of throw some red meat to the backbenchers. If he wants to be the guy who delivers that legacy and that economic message while also finding some way to do tax cuts. What he ought to be doing at the moment, expectations-wise, is saying, you know, it's very tough, little headroom, the fiscal rules come first, the economic plan and low inflation, that is the absolute priority. And he should have been there for the last two months so that at the end, when he comes to the budget, he can say, I've delivered that, the economic message, sound, strong, long-term. Oh, and by the way, my surprise is I can also ease the burden on families with tax cuts. But because he's allowed, and he encouraged this himself, all this speculation politically about tax cuts to take hold, the huge danger is on the one hand, they don't drive through that tough economic message because they're cutting taxes. And on the other hand, when they actually deliver the tax cuts, people say, well, you know, is it really a tax cut? And the tax burden's rising, not falling, and you've raised taxes so much. And I, I just wonder whether They've got their expectation management wrong on this one. Why are we talking about tax cuts now? We shouldn't be. I think Hunt knows he's got to deliver something for the Sunak re-election campaign. Whilst preserving his legacy, he might have let the speculation on tax cuts get out of hand. Partly, I think, as you say, to create some political capital for himself with the Tory party. There's another point you make, which is definitely worth examining, which is why do we think a tax cut in this budget is going to make any difference when a two pence reduction in national insurance last autumn didn't seem to make much difference to the Tory fortunes. And the problem is, or just reinforce the message when people look at their pay packets and the media coverage that taxes are going up rather than down. I suppose if I, I mean, the other test I would add into your list is if you're this far out from an election and you've got a manifesto coming and you've got people campaigning, what you know is people are going to be saying, so what's he done for pensioners? And what's he done for young people getting on the housing ladder? And what's he done for the National Health Service? And what's he done for schools or for defence? And what's he done for business? I think business is probably okay because of his tax cuts in the autumn. But 
there's going to be loads of scrutiny for the next six months. So as well as his economic message and the fiscal rules and delivering tax cuts for the Tories, he's also got to show people who are worried or want to show that they're getting the benefit. And all the MPs who want to put that in their manifesto, he's delivering something. So it's actually quite a long list of boxes he needs to tick. That's true, by the way, mini budget. And, you know, putting together a budget is hard. I think there are around 4,000 individual decisions in any one budget. Let me put the case for what I think the government is trying to do and what Jeremy Hunt's trying to do. He's trying to show, first of all, we were the serious grown-up people who came in to stabilise the ship after the disaster of 2022. We are people who make the sums add up, so we've taken difficult decisions on public expenditure and we've managed to get inflation down. It's been tough, but now we're about to turn a corner and we're about to give back to the British people some of their own money, having taken money from them during that difficult period. You've already seen us deliver the tax cuts last year. We're delivering tax cuts this year. If we get re-elected, you'll get tax cuts next year. And you won't get tax cuts from Labour, and Labour will put all of our achievements at risk. That's the central economic narrative. It's their best chance of winning the general election, in my view. And you know, I think, to be fair to Jeremy Hunt, no one thinks he's being too kind of tricksy and crafty. He is seen as an honest broker. So therefore, he is actually the best deliverer of this message. And if I was number 10, I wouldn't want to sort of overly complicate things. Just let Hunt do his job so that you've got a platform upon which you can campaign over the next six months. The interesting thing, though, is that uh, in the last week, we've had the Resolution Foundation, Institute for Fiscal Studies, today the Institute for Government, all calling out whether, in fact, this budget debate, the cross-party debate, is truly honest. The IFG say today, Jeremy Hunt will only meet his fiscal rules through worse-than-fiction spending plans. The IFS point out, if you look at the spending plans which this budget is based upon, there's speculation he may cut the spending projections harder than what this would mean is outside health or education, the rest of public spending, including home office, defence, policing, would end up with um, budget cuts over the next three, four, five years, which would be in line with what you delivered after 2010. The head of the Office of Budget Responsibility just a few weeks ago said this to the Economic Affairs Committee. The government did a spending review setting out detailed departmental spending plans for the year up until the 31st of March 2025. Beyond that, we know virtually nothing. It is just two numbers, one for total current spending and one for total capital spending done by departments. Um, And I think some people have referred to that as the work of fiction. I think that's probably generous given that someone's bothered to write a work of fiction, whereas the government hasn't even been bothered to write down what its departmental spending plans are underpinning the plans for public services. That was Richard Hughes, the head of the Office of Budget Responsibility. And the thing which we know is, after the election, whoever wins, the public spending projections in the plans, which these tax cuts, if they happen, are based upon, are incredibly tight at a time when NHS waiting lists are really high and criminal justice system is under such pressure. And we've talked about the need for more spending on defence because of a dangerous world. And there is something failing at the moment about politics where both parties will go along with this. Very hard for Labour to depart from the baseline set by the government in the budget documents. And Labour saying they want to cut taxes rather than raise them for working people. But actually, I mean, nobody believes, I don't think, that these public spending plans are deliverable after the election. And nobody's really going to call that out. I think they are deliverable. If you're prepared to make the argument, as I was as Chancellor, that you know the state is spending too much money and we're going to make difficult decisions on things like welfare budgets. And you know the things I introduced were pretty controversial at the time. We've discussed them before. Things like the two-child policy in welfare or the benefit cap, you know, 
Those are difficult decisions, but they reduce public spending. What's fiction is that you can deliver the spending plans that are penciled in without making tough decisions like that. You can make an argument for the smaller state, and I would argue you can make it politically effectively in the sense that you can get yourself re-elected on it. But no one is doing that, and so the OBR boss is right to call things out. I don't think we're going to get any clarity between now and the general election on public expenditure because neither party wants to talk about it. And this is the kind of, I think for the listeners of this podcast, it's just worth reflecting on that. The kind of one of the central issues, how much does government spend and raise? The reason why parliaments first came into existence in British history is not going to be a subject in this general election because neither party wants to confront the truth of whether it means, in fact, higher taxes or lower spending, is a kind of convenience for both parties to sit behind these numbers just penciled in the future without the reality of how those numbers are ever going to be delivered being spelt out before polling day. Look, you did some things on welfare, which I disagreed with, some things I profoundly disagreed with. We can talk about that some other time. But the reality is spending on incapacity benefits has been going up rather than down over this parliament. Public spending on welfare hasn't been controlled. And can we have any confidence that either government can really get a grip on that rising incapacity bill? Pension spending on welfare, both parties seem to be making commitments to increase that expenditure. But defence is under huge pressure and people want the criminal justice system to work and the prison's are full and we've got seven and a half million people waiting for operations. The state is not going to get smaller in Britain. Well, I think it's interesting that I don't think we are now going to have before the general election that kind of autumn statement, a sort of second budget this year. And from what I understand, the reason why the government are not going to do that and they have thought about it is because they frankly would have to spell out more of the public expenditure implications and they're not prepared to do that. Despite these think tank reports despite the think tank reports. And so you have this kind of unholy pact between Labour and Conservatives that neither of them want to talk about public spending as you get to the election. And after the election, it's going to be very, very difficult. The one thing you can definitely say in these final days, even if the OBR's forecast is done and even if the budget measures are still um, sorted out, Jamie Hunt will still be working on his speech mm. and he'll be doing that all through the weekend. Did you spend the weekend before the budget doing your speech? I spent the whole weekend writing my own speech. I mean, the Treasury did a fantastic job, but I felt I had to write the speech myself because that was my way of encapsulating the argument I wanted to make and getting all of the information into my head. I learned that lesson actually from Nigel Lawson, who wrote his own budget speeches. I would sit there in my room in the flat I lived in, in number 10 Downing Street, at the top of number 10 Downing Street, with some music on, Goldberg variations from Bach. I didn't have you playing it. No, but if you want, I can get you the recording. (laughs) The opening aria. You should send... There was a different Ed Balls back then I was worried about, not the uh, piano playing... No. Gangnam style dancing at balls. That's yeah, true. and I would try and get the speech right. Who was in the room with you? Just myself. I would do it. I would, uh, did you? I just did it by myself. Gordon Brown used to do it at a computer with the speech projected onto a big screen and then sitting around would be me, Ed Miliband, sometimes Douglas Alexander would pop in, Bob Shrum, the American speechwriter. Gordon, as I discussed before the podcast, never liked talking about the measures, but he always liked, you know, this is a kingdom united in name only. That was a early Bob Shrum line. We realised we had to get Bob Shrum in the room because the very first budget, July 1997, Gordon said, we need to get Bob's help. But Bob Shrum was in Umbria on holiday. This was like in a pre-email world, really. So the only way to get in the speech, we didn't tell the Treasury because they would have been horrified, the officials, that we were going to send the budget speech to Bob Shrum. Not least because the only way to get it to him was a fax on the bar 
in this Umbrian hotel. And it was such a slow fax at the time. It only did like a page a minute. So I think Bob Schrum was basically at the bar for two hours waiting for this fax to come through. By the end of it, I think he was so... Totally pissed. He was so inebriated, he had to then say, we'll give you the comments in the morning. But anyway, he came up with some great lines. After that, Gordon said, we need to get him in the room. So, so none of these WhatsApp groups back then. But getting the speech right is really, really important. And sometimes I have to say that, I mean, there were causes I was interested in, like, you know, I've always been a bit of a science geek. So someone came to us and said, could we fund a British uh, lunar mission to Mars? And uh, I Coins, also, you did. I, I, uh, coins. And Shakespeare. I also, yes, there was the Magna Carta anniversary. I wanted to fund that. But they also provided pegs for jokes against Labour. So I could talk about the Red Planet or I could talk about the Union Barons against the King when I was uh, staring down at Ed Miliband. So, we, you know, the budget's got to work politically. It's got to work economically. It's got to be a bit of theatre. It's a lot to get right. And by the way, we should perhaps next week talk about the test that the leader of the opposition faces because it's not the shadow chancellor who responds to the budget, but Keir Starmer. So good luck to Jeremy Hunt over this weekend as he crafts his uh, speech and the leader of the opposition as he works out how to write a speech responding to a budget he's not yet seen, which is one hell of a challenge. Of course, we were talking earlier about how you make the sums add up, how you square the circle. And the reason why it's such a challenge at the moment isn't only because our national debt is so high, debt interest payments are so big, but also because the growth projections, which our economy is delivering, which the OBR forecasts, are so much weaker now than they were 20, 30 years ago. Since the financial crisis, our economy has grown much more slowly and turning that growth performance around. I mean, this is one thing we'll have to say Liz Truss was right. Turning the growth performance around is the key to solving our fiscal problems and delivering the kind of public services we want to see. And we'll talk about that in a moment. So, Professor Balls, I think you've been engaged in some cakeism to borrow from another of our great former Tory leaders, Boris Johnson. You you believe that the cake, the size of the British economy could be made bigger than it is projected already to be with uh, a better approach to regional growth. And you've written with some other bods, a paper at Harvard about how this could all be done. So I'm going to approach this, you know, someone who was passionate about regional growth when I was chancellor, tried to promote the Northern powers. But haven't we had a lot of talk of regional growth in recent years and not much has happened? Absolutely. That is central to this, that we have all failed over decades, Labour and Conservative governments, to turn this round. The unusual thing about the UK is not only that we've had slower growth over the last 15 years, but also we've seen for a longer period divides between London and the southeast and the rest of the UK widen. Actually, the gap is now wider in the UK than between North and South Italy or between East and West Germany. And the fundamental thing, look, it's partly about London's success, but it's also, if you look at our cities, our non-London cities grow much less effectively and strongly. They're less productive than comparable cities in um, continental Europe or in the United States. And that's partly about them not having the right kind of skills, a lack of STEM skills. It's partly about challenges in terms of how we spend on innovation and not backing our universities enough. But fundamentally, it's that our local transport systems and housing mean that those cities are too small. They're not economically as dynamic and vibrant as they should be. So that's what the economic analysis says. The second thing we did was we talked to uh, you and six other chancellors, three prime ministers, a hundred past policymakers who all said, we've never had a plan and stuck to it. We've been too centralising. 
We haven't really focused on what needs to be done institutionally and in terms of levers to turn this around. There is a chance that things are going to improve because there's now a lot of support for the combined authorities, larger authorities than the individual local one, like you see in London or in Greater Manchester in West Yorkshire. These are like the local elected mayors. With elected mayors. And what we're saying in this paper is that as well as the resources and the levers, you've got to have an institutional arrangement which now covers the whole of England and the UK. And you've got to go for it and have a plan and stick to it. And it's got to be a 20-year plan rather than a five-year plan, something which doesn't get ripped up when every election comes around. And we had, at our launch, Michael Gove came along and basically said, you know, he signs up to it. I think if you've got Michael Gove and Angela Rayner in a room and we talked about this, they would say this is the right approach. Our politics, though, makes it very hard to come together to agree. But how are you going to get businesses to invest for the long term unless you've got a long term plan? And how can you have a long term plan unless we come up with a plan we can stick to? So realistically, as we've discussed before, you can't create a political consensus by just asking for one. You know, you basically have to do... It's emerging now, though. Yeah, I think you're right. The elected mayors, you know, I'm very proud to be one of the progenitors of this, in Manchester, in the West Midlands, you know, have turned out to be a real success. And by the way, a platform for serious people like Andy Street or Andy Burnham in those places to pursue political careers. And they have become recognisable figures, both in their locality and on the national stage. And I think you are approaching what, um, you know, someone who used to work with me in the Treasury, Jim O'Neill, and now I think it's no secret, is uh, giving some help and advice to Labour. What he first identified, he, by the way, was the chief economist at Goldman Sachs, who coined the phrase the BRICS about Brazil and Russia and China originally. And he says, you know, you need these cities that you're talking about to have to be larger in the UK and to be better connected to each other. And then you start and to get to the towns around them. Yeah. And you get the agglomeration effects, the kind of cluster effects. I think if you put the transport in, you put the science in, you put the local decision making in, you can achieve what it means you're Whitehall about. has to let go and to evolve more. And I think what was interesting in the discussions we had with you for our project is that even you yes, found yeah. it hard to get departments like education or DWP very hard to let go. And the NHS, by the way, is one of the most centralised of all the organisations. The thing we say in the paper is unless the Prime Minister and the Chancellor both really want yeah, this, now we were... it doesn't happen. Okay. And the truth was, you know, I think I would look back and say neither Tony Blair or David Cameron got behind this as much as they needed to politically. Well, the Northern Powerhouse launched in the Turbine Hall of the Museum of Science and Industry in Manchester. That did have David Cameron's backing. That helped, even though I was, at that point was a pretty strong chancellor within the government several years into. So the, why didn't the Secretary of State want to devolve? Well, did because he have they, the leverage to be, make them. Yes, because uh, there's a, there is a kind of re- legitimate Whitehall argument, which is we're going to give up control of these things. If they get mismanaged, we're the people who have to step in and rescue them, as you've seen with Transport for London, where, they, again, the Department for Transport has to sort of step in. If you take that view, then you'd never devolve anything. You have to accept that things aren't necessarily always going to work. I guess the kind of question I have is the hardest thing is what do you do about the parts of the country that you're never going to be able to create the kind of agglomeration effects around? Yes, Manchester, one of the enormous success stories of my entire lifetime has been the success from the 1980s onwards in turning Manchester around. Very sensible series of Labour leaders of Manchester councils, often in alliance with conservative governments, have achieved remarkable things for that city. And it's one of the fastest growing cities in Europe. But what about the kind of left behind bits of North Lincolnshire, of Teesside, of the area around Carlisle and Cumbria, you know, where the kind of economic geography or the Welsh mining valleys where the mining's gone, 
you know, there is this really difficult question, which countries all around the world don't really want to face, which is what happens when the economic purpose of a community disappears? Can you sustain those communities? And I'm not sure anyone's really come up with those answers. You get that debate raging in America about the Rust Belt. You get the same debate in about industrial parts of Germany and France as we have here. And that's right. But the one thing you can't do is say we've got an answer to growth, which is going to be combined authorities with, with an elected mayor, but it's only going to be for some places. You have to say everybody's going to be part of it. And in the end, it becomes about connecting those places into the kind of big growth poles. And you have to think about the local transport system and also what's happening to education and skills and business creation in those localities. Justin Greening, former education secretary, doing some very good work around social mobility and those kind of places. I've talked to her about that. I just I think we have to be ambitious and lead it from the centre and get away from the stop-start if it was a Tory idea, we're going to rip it up. If it was a Labour idea, we're going to rip it up. Mm, we... but first of all, you mentioned Angela Rayner. I mean, she's not the most sort of bipartisan, let's uh, work with the Tories. By the way, it's worth noting she has potentially quite serious... Didn't think you used to be either. No. Well, I would pick, I would pick actually Labour people I could work with in order to make your job harder. <laughs> but by the way, I should note just one of those little tiny clouds on the horizon. Angela Rayner has some tax issues, which might turn out to be quite a much bigger story around capital gains tax on the sale of on a house. Anyway, I, w- I will just note that in passing. But, you know, she's... While pretty- having a discussion about cross-party consensus building <laughs> for the long-term future of our nation. Yes. It's, it's regions, cities and towns. In, in that kind of cross-party <laughs> spirit. How did you find, uh, how did you find my friend Michael Gove? He's- Was he demob happy? I think he is absolutely looking to make sure the things he's trying to do around levelling up, but actually he's been behind deepening, you know, not the kind of levelling up where you have little pots at the centre and hand out the money, but trying to have more powers transferred over to the Manchester and the Birmingham mayors. And I think he is up for this and wants to see that as part of his legacy, whoever wins the next election. So he was absolutely looking for a cross-party approach Mm. to this into the future. And saying things which were clearly not the party line. <laughs> Wouldn't be the first time. I used to do, of course, loads of these regional visits as part of promoting the Northern Powerhouse. And one of the things we discovered on the regional visits is you don't want to just turn up and in a suit and do a sort of boring meeting with the local councillors, I mean, important as that is. But we wanted to create more televisual pictures of that things were happening in the regions and uh, that I was trying to support them. So I would put High on, vis and hard hats. High vis, hard hats. And often doing things like, you know, building a wall or putting a roof on a house or something like that. There was one point where I went to an Indian restaurant in Birmingham and uh, was supposed to cook a meal and they had a naan oven and I was live on camera, you know, making this curry and uh, I put the naan into the oven and absolutely scorched my hand on the edge. But of course I couldn't scream. I was like on camera so I had to... And I also nailed myself with a kind of nailing gun when doing a visit near Clacton in the east of England and again had to, you know, not show any uh, pain in front of the camera. <laughs> These regional visits were were full of potential risks. As you did. I know, but in the end, you've got to embrace the risk. I, I mean, I love messy play. Anything which involved cooking... Trouble is, you would go with other politicians and, you know, I just remember these moments where, um, you know, we were in some school assembly room and some kid throws me a ball and I turn to Ed Miliband and look as though I'm about to throw it at him and you can see this sort of fear <laughs> in his eyes. There was one visit we were doing, breakfast visit to a Harris Academy with BBC Breakfast TV there and there was me, Kelly Holmes and Gordon Brown and a trampoline. 
And the previous week, I'd got Gordon to a tennis match and he could see me looking at this trampoline and thinking he's not going to, is he? And I then said, live on BBC Breakfast, Kelly, what do you reckon? Shall we get on? And Gordon set off in the opposite direction. Well, very he, sensible. He was not joining us on the trampoline. A- anyone who's ever seen a video of me skipping will know that Gordon Brown took the right decision. Skip to be fit. <laughs> I, did, I, I beat you on that one, I tell you. That was not hard to do. We could reminisce about past visits for a long time. And may I say, George, you know, despite your odd kind of deviations, I think you do think a cross-party consensus to turn around the growth performance of Britain by entrenching strong sub-regional institutions is a good thing, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Thank God for that. That's all for this week of Political Currency. We'll be back next week with EMQs, but also the budget is coming up. And we're going to pop up on Wednesday with a special post-budget reaction before our main event podcast the following day. Yes, but our instant reactions of the budget on Wednesday won't be a podcast. Really? Well, no, we're going to be trying something new. We're actually going to be popping up live on our social media accounts. So the Chancellor will sit down and then a couple of hours later at 3pm, we'll be popping up to give you our takes. And you'll also be able to send us your questions live. Follow us at Poll Currency to make sure you don't miss that. See you Monday. See you then. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production.